I'm George Selgin. I'm the director of Cato's uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And I'm very pleased to be taking part in this 35th annual monetary conference. Uh, I'm here to introduce our third panel dealing with the war on cash, uh, as you should know, <laughs> but perhaps uh, uh, don't. Uh, Cato, the Cato Institute is a, is a libertarian think tank, and that means that we're all for government policies aimed at protecting the uh, lives and property of American citizens, but we're not so keen on wars, generally speaking, uh, since they often don't serve that particular purpose. It goes for a lot of foreign wars. It also goes for the war on drugs. But now it seems that if certain policy experts have their way, we, we, have to, we may have to contend with a, a new war, a new kind of war, a war on cash or paper currency. And uh, that raises some obvious questions. Uh, would this kind of war be a good idea? Is it likely to achieve its stated purposes, which is to suppress underground activity, get people to pay more taxes, and eliminate uh, certain uh, criminal activities or reduce them? And finally, if it can at least achieve its stated goals, at what cost would it do so? So these are, so, these are the main questions, uh, uh, among others, that our three panelists today are going to tackle. So let me introduce them to you. Our first speaker will be Lawrence White from George Mason University. Uh, and uh, Larry, I should say, is my mentor from New York University, as well as a former colleague of mine. Uh, we were together at the University of Georgia for many years. He's, uh, among other things, the author of uh, two uh, books on uh, banking policy that I'd like to mention, uh, monetary economics broadly and, mon and banking policy and history. One is uh, Theory of Monetary Institutions, uh, uh, which is a really nice guide to modern monetary economic issues, theoretical issues, and, the 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 sorry, and free banking in Britain about the Scottish free banking system. He's also the author of a, an excellent history of 20th century macroeconomic thought, the clash of economic ideas. Bill the straps, sorry, uh, uh, Norbert Michel, you're speaking second, aren't you? Yes. Norbert Michel is my, is my counterpart at the Heritage Foundation here in DC. Uh, what I mean really is he's the counterpart of me and my whole staff and several other people I think, because the amount of work Norbert does single-handedly is uh, really uh, amazingly impressive. Uh, uh, and it's, a, it's actually a, uh, uh, something of a, an inspiration to us here that we should be able to do at least as much as Norbert does by himself, and we're trying. And finally, uh, Bill Straps is another of my former colleagues uh, from the University of Georgia, and uh, uh, one of the best darn econometricians I know, and uh, I'm going to uh, uh, just briefly uh, uh, tell you that uh, their three respective roles here consist of a, a general talk about uh, what the war on cash encompasses and whether it's likely to accomplish its goals uh, from uh, uh, Larry White, 
and uh, then Norbert will be speaking about the politics behind the war on cash and specifically how likely is it to be uh, to gain political traction in this country. And finally, uh, Bill Straps will talk about the uh, welfare effects uh, of the war on cash. Is it likely to make people better off or not? So without further ado, uh, Larry White. Thanks, George, and I'm uh, happy to be back at the Cato Monetary Conference. Some of you uh, may be familiar with this book by Kenneth Rogoff, The Curse of Cash. I'm going to take a slightly different perspective. So I'm going to call my talk The Curse of the War on Cash. And if there are any uh, intellectual property lawyers from Professor Rogoff's publisher here, parody is a protected use under the Fair Use Doctrine. Uh, the war on cash is obviously a kind of provocative uh, name for this policy initiative. Lots of provocative pictures we can use to uh, illustrate it. Uh, but what I mean by the war on cash is uh, government actions and central bank actions. So I'm excluding, uh, I don't know, Visa trying to incentivize merchants to use their cards instead of cash. I'm talking about government policies and central bank policies to suppress paper currencies, and especially the focus has recently been on high denominations. Um, I'm associated with an online journal called Econ Journal Watch, and we ran an essay review of uh, Ken Rogoff's book uh, by Jeff Hummel, and gave uh, Rogoff space to respond to the review and Rogoff began his response by saying, well, war on cash, that's a pretty provocative rhetorical way of putting things. Turns out he wasn't objecting to the term war. <laughs> he was objecting to the term cash. He said, look, I'm not calling for a ban on all cash, just high denomination bills. Well, but the title of your book is not the curse of high denomination currency. <laughs> So in that same spirit, I'm talking about the war on cash. Uh, there are two principal declared aims. Uh, one is to shift payments toward electronic media in order to fight tax evasion and in order to fight uh, various crimes. And if you want to know which crimes are associated with the use of cash, well, if you read some of this literature, you'll find out it's the most despicable crimes that you can imagine. Those people use cash. They also use automobiles and highways and telephones, but the focus is on their use of cash and the way to disrupt their activities is to make cash less convenient for them to use. And of course, my reaction is gonna be, there are a lot of non-criminals who use cash. We ought to count their inconvenience into the uh, calculation. Uh, second objective is to, and this is where there's some connection with the topic that's been discussed earlier today, uh, monetary policy. Second objective is to make negative interest rate policy more feasible. Because when interest rates go below zero, people will say, why should I keep my money in the bank if I'm earning a negative return on it? Why don't I just put it in cash and hang on to the cash and at least I'll earn zero? And there is a storage cost, but the storage cost is a fraction of 1%. So that fraction kind of limits how low negative interest rate policy can go. And so it's an explicit objective of Rogoff and others advocating this to make it more costly to store cash. 
And if you think, well, storing cash is legal, therefore making a legal activity more costly sounds like cutting into consumer surplus, sounds like bad policy, you're thinking the wrong way. You're thinking about it from the point of view of the consumer. They're thinking about it from the point of view of the tax collector uh, or the monetary policy uh, agent who wants negative interest rates. Uh, so the, the higher the cost of storing cash, the more negative uh, interest rates can go. I'm going to come back to other aims that are not so openly declared, but uh, Ken Rogoff in a paper back in 2014 where it was very explicit about the, these two aims, tax evasion and illegal activity. On the one hand, we want to make those more costly to undertake. And secondly, we want to ease the constraint of the lower bound, the zero lower bound. And this provides, uh, this makes it appropriate to consider the costs and benefits of a more proactive strategy uh, for phasing out the use of paper currency. And of course, a lot of it depends on what that means, a more proactive strategy. Uh, and I think the, the zero lower bound question is that what actually explains the timing of the interest in this uh, kind of strategy. But a lot of the rhetoric has been shifted to the fighting crime part. Uh, and of course, we're not as close to the zero lower bound as we were uh, before the Fed started raising rates. But the argument is made that there's always a danger. We're in a, living in a world now where there's more risk of being at the zero lower bound. And so this is one way of uh, approaching it. The other way of approaching it that's been advocated by some economists uh, organized by the Fed Up Coalition is to try to raise the Fed's inflation target so that we can raise nominal interest rates so that the Fed can have more ammunition, a farther uh, gap between the current interest rate and zero to cut when the uh, time comes. Uh, I don't think either one's a very good idea. Uh, if you're not familiar with what's already being done to suppress the use of cash, here are the, the current tactics. Uh, first, and as I've mentioned, abolishing high denomination banknotes. And you might say, well, that at least is not a coercive policy. That's just an administrative detail. It's up to the central bank to decide what denominations it wants to issue. So it's not really a public policy, not something the public should be upset about. The coercion happened decades ago when the central bank took a monopoly on issuing paper currency. There are still a few places in the world where commercial banks issue currency. But having taken over that monopoly, yes, now it's just an administrative matter. Congress doesn't have to pass a law in order for the Fed to decide to phase out the $100 bill. Uh, the European Central Bank has announced under pressure of these uh, anti-cash arguments that it will phase out the 500 euro note in the sense that it will stop reissuing 500 euro notes that come back. Uh, it, it hasn't announced any plans to invalidate the existing 500 euro notes yet. Uh, the extreme case of invalidating large denomination currency occurred in India last year. I'll come back to that case. Uh, second tactic, have a maximum legal value for cash transactions or reporting requirements for cash transactions. So we don't have the maximum legal value in the US, but we do have reporting requirements. Whereas in Europe, uh, if you're transacting with a business, the maximum cash payment you can make is 3,000 euros in Italy, 1,000 in France and Spain, only 500 in Greece, and there are, I think, eight other countries where there are these kind of limits within the Eurozone. Uh, in the US, anytime a business accepts 
a cash payment of $10,000 or more, it has to report it uh, to the IRS, and the IRS shares the information with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network of the Treasury. Uh, third tactic, uh, declare cash when you're crossing borders. We're all familiar with that. Uh, it used to be that the penalty for not declaring was a fine. In the Patriot Act, it became uh, contraband to have undeclared currency, so the Border Patrol can uh, just take it, uh, and good luck getting it back. Uh, and then lastly, banks have to report cash transactions, cash deposits in the U.S. of $10,000 or more, or deposits or withdrawals that are suspiciously close to $10,000. If you make deposits of less than $10,000 and then repeat them, in the hopes of avoiding currency transaction reports, that's a crime itself uh, called structuring. Uh, so those are the tactics. Uh, in the wings, we can observe in other countries some other tactics. Uh, in Nigeria, there's a, a tax on cash withdrawals above a certain level. Uh, in Greece, it's mandatory to declare the size of your cash hoard to the tax authorities. So that may be next, uh, other places. Now, there are collateral uh, victims. There's collateral damage in this kind of uh, war. And one case that got a fair amount of publicity, there were actually congressional hearings about it, was a case of two dairy farmers in Maryland called Randy and Karen Sowers, and they apparently sold a lot of cheese at farmer's markets and were depositing cash every weekend. And the bank noticed that they were depositing under $10,000, but doing it repeatedly. So they reported them, and uh, the Treasury swooped in and seized $29,500 uh, and charged them with structuring, even though they didn't suspect them or charge them with any other crime, not money laundering, not tax evasion nothing. Uh, the Institute for Justice estimates that the IRS took a lot of cash from other people under the same circumstances. And after these congressional hearings, they did return the Sowers money. And change, uh, even before that, they changed their policy to where now they say, we won't confiscate money just for structuring unless we suspect some other crime. And notice that it, it all, all that it takes is suspicion to confiscate the cash, not conviction. Uh, in India, in November, uh, actually happened on our election day, uh, the two largest denomination notes, the 500 and the 1,000 rupee, were demonetized, meaning people couldn't spend them anymore. They had 50 days to turn them in. Uh, either turn them in for new notes, which weren't available yet, so <laughs> that was a problem, or to turn them into a bank for deposit credit. Uh, and so there was an incredible shortage of cash for several months until the new notes became available. They hadn't pre-printed them because it was supposed to be a surprise. And it was a surprise to catch people with hordes uh, of cash that they hadn't declared as income. And the hope was that uh, the people holding this black money would not want to turn it in in large amounts because that would identify them to the tax authorities. So they would just suffer a capital loss. And then the Reserve Bank of India would be able to replace that currency by issuing more, and there's more seniorage. Uh, turns out 99% of the invalidated notes were returned. So, oops, didn't catch anybody. Uh, 
but it, it illustrated quite dramatically the harm. Uh, the, the extreme currency shortage could have been avoided and is avoided normally in a, a note replacement if you give people warning. Uh, but we see in the, in the currency shortage uh, in, a, in a kind of extreme form the harm to small business people who rely on cash. And in India, of course, half the population is unbanked. But even in countries where that percentage is lower, there are still people, especially the poor, who are unbanked or who, for other reasons, rely heavily on currency. They suffer. Uh, and the businesses suffer and the consumers suffer by having to use higher transaction cost methods. Uh, now, you might think I'm straw manning the issue. Who actually advocates a war on cash in low-income countries? Rogoff looked at the Indian experiment and said, that's not what I'm recommending. Uh, but there is a group called the Better Than Cash Alliance, which promotes uh, lo lower cash use one way or another uh, in developing countries. And this is a kind of Baptist and bootlegger story, meaning that it's support, the effort is supported by people who really think it's going to benefit the poor to have electronic payments, uh, and those who stand to benefit from the conversion into electronic payments. So the resource partners of this uh, alliance are not just uh, the UN and USAID and the Swedish International Development Agency, but Visa, MasterCard, and Citi. Uh, <laughs> And they stand to gain the more transactions go through their networks. So that seems to be a kind of private interest at work here. And I put the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Omidyar Network in the middle because I'm not sure whether they're Baptists or bootleggers in this operation. Uh, you have to judge for yourself, I guess. But Better Than Cash Alliance wants to make cash history is the way they put it. They talk about financial inclusion. But if you take away people's best options for making payments, and if that happens to be cash, you're actually excluding them from convenient participation in markets and financial life. Um, doesn't make anybody better off to take away their options. If you want to make them better off, give them new options. Don't take away the old options. Uh, if everybody gains, there's no need for coercion. Right? And the, the resort to coercion, the Better Than Cash Alliance endorsing methods to tax or suppress the use of currency uh, sort of betrays that this is not a win-win situation. But making electronic payments available in the developing world, that's an entrepreneurial challenge. It's not a collective action problem. So it seems to me the, the first rule for doctors of political economy ought to be like the first rule for medical doctors, do no harm. Don't advocate policies that make people worse off, that abridge their freedom, that reduce their welfare. Uh, I haven't gotten into the connection between suppressing cash and suppressing uh, victimless crimes, but it's victimless crimes that particularly benefit from this kind of enforcement method because although people report it when their property is stolen, that's a crime with a victim, people don't report it when somebody sold them some marijuana, so it's hard to find them. <laughs> Uh, unless you can find large amounts of cash moving around. But withdrawing the $100 bill, which is the issue in the United States, uh, would inconvenience a great many innocent, law-abiding people at all income levels. It's not just something used by the rich. Uh, and around the world, because the $100 bill is popular around the world. And I wonder whether the USAID is talking to the Treasury 
and realizes the amount of seniorage that would be sacrificed <laughs> if the $100 bill were abolished. Thank you. We're living in a rather exciting time uh, in, in terms of options that we have available to us to use money. Uh, we have, of course, the, the Bitcoin phenomenon, the blockchain phenomenon, uh, credit cards and debit cards, Venmo, mobile phones have used, have sparked all sorts of different payment methods. And it's commonly reported, and everybody surely knows, that nobody uses cash anymore. Uh, except that's not quite right. Uh, it's actually quite large uh, in terms of who still uses cash. Most people do still use cash. It is mostly, it seems anyway, mostly for smaller purchases. Um, but by volume, it's actually almost half of all transactions in the US are still cash. So the, the war on cash, if you will, uh, stands to have a major impact on commerce one way or the other. And, and of course, by value, uh, it, it is different because we are talking about generally talking about smaller purchases, not larger. But there are still many, and this is Federal Reserve data that shows that there are still actually many, uh, many transactions that are, are high value, high dollar transactions that are still done by cash. Uh, and, and maybe we do have a cashless future. Uh, that's, if that's the way that that plays out due to choice, consumer choice, then that's just fine. Uh, but we, we should sort of go the Mark Twain route here in terms of over-exaggerating our own death uh, because this has been something that has been floated a very, for a very long time now. The earliest uh, uh, sort of mentions of this idea that I can find, that I've been able to find, go back to the late 60s, early 70s. Um, one is an AP story that talked about our cashless future. Uh, the one that the CEO of Citi mentioned in a speech just a couple years ago um, was in 1972 an article predicting that by the end of the 1970s uh, there we would hardly use any cash at all. And that obviously didn't turn out quite the way they predicted uh, because it turns out, again, many people do still like to use cash, whether they're banked or not. The, the origins of this in, in terms of the U.S. war on cash probably have to mention the, the 1970 Bank Secrecy Act, but I, I hesitate to just lump all of this stuff together, uh, even though that law is primarily the foundation for some of the federal efforts to sort of mitigate the use of cash. Uh, it, it was not aimed really at doing just that on the consumer level. And the, the $10,000 threshold that we still have was set in 1970, which in today's dollars, of course, is much more like seventy dollars or $80,000. Uh, it, it was legitimately aimed at foreign banks and foreign money laundering and foreign tax, foreign company tax evasion and that sort of thing. I'm not saying that that's good or bad. I'm just saying it, it wasn't really uh, anything to do with getting rid of high or low denomination dollar bills, even though it does ha has sort of morphed. And as Larry mentioned, I'll just quickly go through this part. Uh, sort of the, the primary uh, arguments for this war on cash now hinge on wasted resources or or uh, it's cheaper to use to not use cash. It's less expensive to use electronic payment and so forth. Uh, tax evasion and crime, of course. And then the newest one is the monetary policy argument uh, at the zero lower bound. Uh, we need some mechanism to have more effective monetary policy because people can just hold on to their cash. 
outside of the Bank Secrecy Act, the AML laws, there are, at the federal level, there are actually very few pieces of legislation that, that deal with mitigating cash use in any way at all. One of, well, I, and I have two in particular that I'll flag, and, and there, there's really not that many more that I could find in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, one is the Coins Act, and that was first introduced in 2011. It was reintroduced in 2017, uh, sponsored by Senator McCain lately, uh, uh, Rep Schweikert originally. And that one would have suspended the production of the penny, but it would have required a GAO study on, uh, on what impact that had after we suspended the production of the penny. Um, seems a little backwards, but that's what they were going to do. And the more important part here is that they were going to replace $1 paper notes with uh, paper, uh, I'm sorry, with $1 coins. The same year coin, the Coins Act was introduced uh, in 2011, Senators Brown and Kerry, both of Massachusetts, introduced their own bill, the Currency Efficiency Act, and that would have done the opposite. It would have suspended the production of $1 coins whenever the Treasury said that there's a surplus. And if you read the text of their legislation and their reasoning, it's that they thought there was a surplus, and they were saying the opposite. They were saying, no, that's silly. We have, we have coins all over the place. Nobody uses coins. We should be going in the other direction. Um, and if you read those two pieces by themselves, it sounds like sort of a, a noble Senate debate on what's the best form of money, right? Um, well, maybe, maybe that's true, but it turns out that about two-thirds of the U.S. copper supply is mined in Arizona, uh, and, and most coins have some copper in them at least. Uh, the penny, it turns out, is mostly zinc. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> But most, of the, but most of the coins have at least some copper in them, and that's mine, those are mined in Arizona. And then you have, on the other side of this, you have Crane & Company, a paper company, that, that has supplied paper currency to the U.S. Treasury since 1879. Uh, that's what our, the, the paper that our currency is printed on. And they happen to be in Massachusetts. I'm sure it's strictly a coincidence. Uh, and... and I didn't know about Crane and Company uh, until I read something that was put out by this special interest group, the Dollar Coin Alliance. They include many different mining associations, some of which are in Arizona, uh, not all of which are in Arizona, however. Um, and then there's, and, and they, they put out uh, a flyer flagging Crane and Company as being from Massachusetts, and they sort of started that little battle uh, amongst Capitol Hill lobbyists, which is always fun, uh, to me anyway. And the, the one that I didn't have time to add, because George pointed this out to me later on, um, there's also a zinc lobby, believe it or not, and there's a, a group called American for Common Sense, C-E-N-T-S, Sense? Uh, and they, uh, they're, they're lobbying for pennies, because pennies are mostly zinc. Um, so that kind of gives you just an overview of the flavor of how that part of the, the war on cash would play out. Now, at the state level, I think things are a little bit different. Uh, the, and I'm from Louisiana, so I, I actually was living in Louisiana when this happened. The Louisiana state legislature, pa legislature passed this bill that banned cash use in any secondhand market, very broadly defined. And hardly anybody noticed, it, it, virtually unnoticed. And then, uh, 
and, and within a very short period of time, it sort of uh, stirred up a hornet's nest, uh, which consisted actually of uh, just a lot of people who were just people. It wasn't necessarily special interest group. It was grandmothers who were doing garage sales, realizing that they could be caught in this sort of you know, war on cash. And um, the, the special interest group, though, that tipped it over at the state level, I think, was the Institute for Scrap Recycling Industries. Because this whole thing was passed uh, specifically during a time, or not specifically, but it was, it, was, it was passed during a time when the price of copper had spiked, and that led to a rash of copper thefts. People were stealing brand new air conditioned units off of newly constructed homes to get the copper coils out and go to the scrap metal yard with them. Um, and they fought this bill and it was quickly amended so that it would apply only to secondhand dealers that were dealing in copper. And there have been similar bills to this that have been upheld by the federal courts in New York, Tennessee, and Mississippi. So you would think that uh, it would be impossible for a state U.S. state to regulate the, the, uh, the, the use of Federal Reserve notes, but it turns out that that's not the case at all. Um, that's been upheld in the federal courts. Uh, really quickly, I'll just, I'll, I'll run through these right now and I'll go through a couple of examples before I run out of time. Uh, these are sort of the, the main players, I think, of the, behind the special interest. Uh, the card network companies have an obvious special interest, uh, vested interest in you using the network and not using cash. Turns out that there is actually an ATM industry association as well who has an obvious vested interest in you using cash. And they are definitely fighting about this. Loomis and Brinks has something to do with that. Uh, and then the other three I'll get to here. Um, Visa has sponsored a cashless challenge where they went around literally paying you $10,000 as a small business to agree to not use cash. Um, that's sort of aggressive. At least I think so from if it was my business. Uh, MasterCard CEO has made various statements in the news like this, which is that we're actually competing with cash. Uh, and they have actually started lobbying on behalf of various digital currency companies. The ATM Industry Association has, has very aggressively fought back, saying, look, we're asking for freedom of choice. We don't need a war on cash. And actually, Cash is a good safeguard against some of this digital currency hacking type stuff. So we shouldn't be getting rid of those options because people might want to use them as a hedge against the move to digital. Uh, Loomis and Brinks cash handling companies have also sponsored a lot of these associations and they have their own study which unlike the curse of cash is named the case or similar to the curse for cash is named the case for cash. Um, the, a couple of sort of wild cards in this, I think, uh, because it's a powerful lobby, the NFIB represent a whole lot of businesses and on Capitol Hill, they command a lot of respect. Uh, we had conversations with these guys, my, my intern and I, uh, during the research on this. They don't have an official position, but they are definitely looking at it and waiting to see where their members go. And if their members who are small businesses who like to use cash, get involved in this and get heated in the, on this, then they would likely get involved. And that would become instantly one of the more powerful players in this. The, the Retail uh, Industry Leaders Association, same deal as NFIB, and the National Retail Federation. And I mentioned these two because they had a, a great deal of influence during the Durban Amendment fight. 
and they've proven that they can get involved in legislation and make a very large difference. Uh, they essentially had uh, the Durbin Amendment repeal on the interchange fees stripped out of the Financial Choice Act, which was later passed by the, in the U.S. House. Had that not come out, that, that bill may not have passed. Um, they have also not taken an official position. However, they have, act, they have taken an active role in pushing back against this war on cash. The quote that I have there, uh, that cash is still king, that is from a senior vice president of the National Retail Federation. They too are looking at what their members are saying, but a lot of their members are saying, no, we like to use cash. Uh, and then I'll close with the other sort of category here. I, large banks versus small banks, that's kind of a wild card because they have very different interests. Uh, it's, it's tempting to say that the smaller banks would be more on the pro-cash side because they're going to derive more of their income from fees and ATM fees and, and more custom, be more customer friendly. I'm not quite ready to make such a bold statement. I don't know if I, if I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't go there. Um, but I don't see it as a monolithic bank industry issue. The Federal Reserve, on the other hand, is I think the one group that could tip the scales in this very easily, more easily than any of the others. If the monetary policy angle becomes important enough to them to say, no, we really need to do this. We really need to have this ability. Uh, if in case we're near or at the zero lower bound, we have to have the ability to charge fees to get people to spend more money, especially if at that point in time, the overall use of cash has dropped significantly below that 40% level, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for any of those other associations, any of those other industries, uh, to stop that move from happening. That's my two cents on that one. No pun intended. Thank you, Norbert. Bill the straps. Uh, thank you, George, and I'd like to thank uh, Jim Dorn for the invitation. I am uh, truly honored to be here today uh, to speak about my paper, uh, the modest aim of which is to, uh, is to assess the uh, cost and benefits of currency elimination or supp suppression proposals, the type that uh, Larry and Norbert have talked about. And uh, you, will, you will see that my uh, paper and talk is way more abstract than the fact-based uh, talks that uh, Larry and Norbert gave you. Uh, because I'm going to do this in, in formal terms and try to come up with a, co a coherent way to uh, think about cost and benefits. So in thinking about the uh, cost and benefits and whether proposals to eliminate currency or at least large denomination notes to think about that as a sensible policy, we do need to think sensibly about what cost and benefits mean. And as Larry suggests, it's not right to think about the cost or benefits from the point of view of the government. It has to be from the point of view of households or the private sector. The other two features of a way of assessing these costs and benefits is uh, to make sure it's general equilibrium in the sense that we do our best to understand all of the unintended consequences and feedbacks of and how people respond to such policies, and then to be able to quantify those, uh, those channels through which people will respond. And that's, that's what I've attempted to do uh, in this paper. 
if, if you notice the title of the paper, uh, it's a preliminary analysis, and I probably should have put a very preliminary analysis because there is much to be done. Uh, my main aim here is to give you an idea of how macroeconomists think about issues like this. So um, the basic, I, basic idea of this model, it's a standard macroeconomic model. In fact, I've, I've uh, borrowed it from Ken Rogoff himself in an earlier paper that he wrote. And I have extended it uh, in a way to uh, allow people to use currency to uh, evade taxes. So currency in this model, or cash, or just money, I'm not going to even distinguish types of money, allow people to not report income and therefore evade paying taxes. And therefore, households, uh, consumers, can actually control their effective tax rates. And it's the, the policy uh, that I will consider here is the government's ability to reduce money's productivity in terms of tax evasion. And I do this in, a, in an abstract way, but a way that can be uh, quantified. I'm not going to deal with any of the other issues that uh, have been discussed about why these proposals are being made, such as increasing the cost of, uh, of criminal activity beside tax evasion, uh, illicit activity like the drug war. Uh, there are easier solutions. I'm not going to talk about the uh, ability to make monetary policy easier at the uh, lower, zero lower bound. There are ways to deal with that. Hugh McCulloch talked about one. And there are other ways to actually pay negative interest rate on currency. So my model is going to focus only on tax evasion as the, the illicit, if you will, use of currency. So what I'll do is I'll set up the formal model, and I will calibrate it. That means I'll assign numerical values to the relationships in the model. And then what I can do is, is to simulate what happens when there's a policy that is analogous to getting rid of currency. So I, I'm not, uh, uh, not going to go through all the details. All the dirty details are in the appendix to the paper. Any, any trained macroeconomist will likely recognize the model that I'm using. Uh, but what I'll do is just give you an idea of the nature of how it all works. So I'm, I'm imagining that uh, we have a very simple economy that consists of households and firms. It's a capitalist economy. Households supply labor and capital to firms. They produce output that is sold back to households for consumption purposes. And consumption provides utility and satisfaction to, uh, to those households. Households also hold cash. I mentioned one reason they hold cash is because it allows them to evade taxes. Uh, the other reason is for making other legitimate transactions. Currency reduces transactions costs, so it's beneficial to hold it for that reason as well. The households also have to pay taxes to uh, the government sector. So this model does have a government sector. All it does is to spend, uh, finances that spending by an income tax, and by issuing currency. The uh, government sector in this model, I'm going to allow to be a potentially positive force in the model by providing utility directly to households and by enhancing productivity of firms. So if you think of something like infrastructure, roads, that would benefit households and productivity, that's the sort of idea that I have in mind. The, uh, the tax evasion technology is, again, going to be a function of the amount of currency that people hold. 
and I'm, gonna, I'm going to parameterize this or quantify that function with the parameter phi. It's phi sub tau, but I'll just call it phi because that's only one Greek letter you have to keep track of. But the policy experiment of reducing cash in my model is analogous to reducing the magnitude of this parameter. So very stylized, the model doesn't even distinguish cash from other types of currency, but I see this reduction in the productivity of cash for tax evasion purposes as a reasonable analog and as a first step for quantifying uh, the effects, costs and benefits on households of this currency proposal. All right, so I'm going to show you one graph because I think it does help uh, understand how this model works in terms of tax evasion. So if you think along the horizontal axis, uh, think about that as measuring the quantity of monetary balances that people hold. Think of it as cash on hand, cash in their wallets. And then the effective tax rate that households pay on the vertical axis. So I've shown you a series of functions or curves that show how as you move to the right, as the hypothetical household holds more cash, the effective tax rate declines. The, uh, and it's going to decline as a function of money, but also a function of my parameter fee. The easiest curve to understand here is to look at the horizontal line at 0.25. That would be a situation where the parameter fee is zero. That means the government has somehow effectively eliminated all cash and therefore the effective tax rate is 25%, which is the number that I'm assuming in my model. After that, as the parameter fee rises, the functions drop, and we start to get a, the uh, effective a drop in the effective tax rate. Think of this, this as a flat income tax or an average marginal tax rate on households in this economy. It's gonna drop as fee gets more, as gets bigger, and therefore money gets uh, more productive. So the policy experiment that I'm going to imagine here is for the government sector to start pulling up on the function, to increase the effective tax rate for any given amount of money that people hold. And that means I'm going to reduce the primer fee from one value to another, and you'll see what that value is. The, the, the model is, uh, is going to... Um, Simulate the steady state equilibrium. I'm not going to look at any dynamic effects. This is something that I would hold off for future research. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at a policy experiment, a reduction in the primer fee from 0.5 to 0.4. Those numbers don't mean a whole lot in this context, but roughly speaking, it's on the order of magnitude that we might imagine in terms of an increase in effective tax rates if currency or at least large denomination notes in the U.S. were eliminated, 50s and 100s. Uh, 50s and $100 bills. The increase in the effective tax rate in my model is about 1.5% uh, uh, in term, going from 14.5 average tax rate to 16. And that's roughly what would happen if you get rid of around 340 or $350 billion in hundreds and fifties. So I see this experiment as quantitatively uh, plausible or reasonable. So I'll solve the model. I calibrate by assigning numerical values to relationships. I solve it for the initial value of fee at 0.5, and then I change it to see how the economy responds. And this is going to account in a coherent way for cost and benefits. The benefits uh, of eliminating currency in this case 
will be an increase in effective tax rates and therefore tax revenues that potentially increase household welfare by uh, financing more public goods produced by the government sector. It also, somewhat ironically, if the effective tax rate uh, goes up, it's less profitable for households to supply factors of production like labor and capital to firms, and so leisure goes up. That's the alternative to working. So in terms of a welfare analysis, we have to account for the increase in leisure as a benefit to society or to households. Um, the cost is what I've just said. If effective, effect, if effective tax rates go up, supply of labor and capital go down, and uh, production goes down. And therefore, private consumption of produced goods will also go down. And that reduces welfare, as does the eliminating currency uh, it reduces the legitimate transactions cost. Uh, the, the legitimate transactions cost go up when currency is reduced. All right, so a lot, of, a lot of numbers here. I'll guide you through this table that shows the comparison of welfare ultimately to this policy proposal. So if you, if you move your eyes down the first column, I have variables, Y, C, N, and M. Just focus on the first three. Y is a common symbol for GDP. So that's the total output in my economy. C is consumption, how much of that output is consumed by households. And N is the number of jobs or employment. Along, uh, as we move down the, the columns, uh, we're going to compare different values of fee, that is the policy experiment that uh, I am considering here, and looking at the model solution for output consumption and labor when the policy parameter fee changes. Now, I've done a few cases. You'll see A is equal to zero. That's not giving the government much due because I'm going to assume in this case that the government has no effect on productivity. I'm going to also consider effect in the far right columns where government has productivity that's roughly one-third the productivity of private capital. I'm going to also assume initially that household, that uh, public spending, public goods have no direct effect on household utility or welfare. So uh, the first thing to consider is the, the numbers I have here in red, and this is going to tell us how reasonable the parameterization is. The actual numbers for output and consumption don't mean a whole lot here, but the consumption to income ratio does, and my model hits it at around 60%, which is reasonable. Government spending in my model is around 15% of GDP. And the money supply is around 3.8%. That's roughly the demand for currency. So it seems reasonable. OK, so if the government has no benefits whatsoever and the government reduces and, or eliminates cash, my model predicts because of the effects on factors of production, the increase in the effective tax rate, the reduction in labor supply and capital, output and consumption fall in the range of 5 to 6% and employment falls by 1.53%. Not surprisingly, the demand for money goes down, and the share of government spending goes up to around, in this case, 11%. The key figure here to consider are the red numbers here that show the overall net benefits. So this is what we call utility in our macroeconomic classes. Uh, the satisfaction, the net benefits that households get in this, in this world. And in this case, it goes down. So after all these general equilibrium effects work through the model, 
given this policy experiment, welfare falls by 2.2%. If you took this as a, as a legitimate model, you're convinced of the calibration, it's not a good policy to undertake because net welfare goes down. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so that's a negative sign. So thank you for clarifying that. And in fact, they're always negative on these bottom rows, so this one's going to be negative as well. So if we, if we assume that the, uh, that the government does have some direct effect on utility, again, the roads, are, they, they pay professors of economics at state institutions, and that increases people's uh, utility, you still get a decline, minus 1.68% in overall utility. And this also holds if we uh, allow the government to be productive. So you can see that the numbers, once again, are all negatives except for the government's role in the economy. That's going up because tax revenues are going up. But you still, even this good, uh, the strongest case for the government, the, uh, this is a minus 1.2%. Welfare falls by 1.2%. Don't undertake this policy. And even in this case, where roads and infrastructure provide direct utility, you get a loss in net welfare. Now, I have to admit that we could argue about the values of the parameters, and I can definitely come up with values that allow and imply positive welfare effects. Indeed, if, if I set the parameter A at 0.2, so four times its value, then uh, we can uh, actually, if we set the contribution of the government to utility at, at five or six times the number I have here, then the net welfare effects are essentially zero and people would be indifferent. So again, this is a very preliminary analysis. I do plan on working on this more and extending this work in, in many ways. This model does not even somewhat paradoxically distinguish large banknotes from small banknotes. It doesn't even distinguish currency from bank deposits. It would be useful to incorporate that into the model. It would be useful to incorporate other illicit uses of cash, other uh, aspects of crime. Think about different economies, such as developing versus developed countries, and also consider what happens uh, in the short run. So as I work on this project, I will be sure to keep everybody posted. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Thanks to all the speakers. And uh, now we have time for some questions. Uh, so uh, once again, wait for a microphone to come your way. And please uh, introduce yourself and ask a question, if you don't mind, instead of making speeches, uh, because uh, we like to invite people to make speeches. <laughs> uh, do I see a hand any place? Here's one right here. William Luther Kenyon College. Uh, my question is for Bill. Uh, in your model, you um, assume that the government is uh, able to eliminate cash, but there are, there are also no close substitutes in your model, right? But today we have cryptocurrencies, right? Alternatives that right. provide some degree of anonymity. So I wonder how you think those play 
uh, play into your model? Right, this is definitely a, a place that we would want to extend the model so that we could better calibrate it. But one way to interpret the model, it's general enough, it's so stylized that you can interpret fee uh, in such a way as to incorporate uh, something like Bitcoin or gold as alternatives. And that just means that if those alternatives exist to cash as a means of tax evasion, then the, it's going to make it harder for the government to reduce fee. So remember, my experiment was 0.5 to 0.4. If currency is eliminated in the real world, then fee would not move from 0.5 to 0.4. It moved from 0.5 to 0.49 because people could substitute into Bitcoin, let's say. And so tax evasion is still going to be productive in a sense. So I, you can, by clever calibration, uh, interpret the model to allow for many of these things are not in the model. Now, having said that, that leads to a lot less precision that you, than you could get if you incorporated that, those substitutes into the model. So I, I do hope to do that uh, in the future. Uh, Carl Smith um, from the Niskanen Center. Uh, this is also for Bill. It, it seems to me, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, that the action in your model is happening basically through uh, changes in the marginal tax rate, the effective marginal tax rate. My thought, and just give me a, just on this, is if we're thinking about this as being illicit, then there's like a differential tax rate between people who are like in the illicit market and people who are not. And like, you know, one way of closing it would be like that the uh, non-illicit or the illicit tax rate goes down and then you might get like different effects and so um, I know that's a little bit of a comment but if you wanted to just talk <laughs> talk about the idea of illicit versus illicit. You're, you're asking to uh, make the model a little bit richer in terms of the uh, sector of the economy so there, there's a large literature on uh, formal economy versus informal economy and how resources are shifted across so it's not clear that an informal underground economy is an inefficient thing, uh, but my model picks that up, right? To the extent that, uh, that currency is no longer allowing people to go into that informal market to reduce their tax rates, they're going to cut back on production and make everybody worse off. But, again, having said that, it's another useful extension. So, you know, the thing about economic models and certainly macro models is you have to make assumptions to, to not spend more than a lifetime in doing one model. And uh, th there, are, there are many ways to go. Both of these ideas are good, and, and, and I am working with a co-author uh, who is more skilled in the technical range of all this stuff to, uh, to try to, to get at some of these issues. So there's a lot to be done, and I'll just say quickly, too, that when I started thinking about this after, after Jim uh, invited me, uh, I, I thought for sure when I, when I searched the literature, I'd find that somebody has done this before especially since the idea of currency elimination or large elimination it predates Rogoff by a lot. The OECD has talked about this uh, many years ago. Nobody has seemed to do this. So again, my, my main aim here is to illustrate how to go about doing this uh, in, a, in a way that can, can appropriately account for costs and benefits coherently. So it's a good idea. I'll, I'll try. Speaking for myself, I can think of a few macro models whose authors I wish had not lived to complete them. <laughs> um, let's go first in the back there, and then you're, you're next. Yeah, 
Yeah, thank you. My name's Adrian Day. Um, this is really for the first two speakers, one, one or other. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, uh, measures have been very, very small and incremental, and as you mentioned, appear administrative in, in nature. So there hasn't been much public reaction. But how do you think the public uh, in America would respond to something like abolition of a $100 and $50 bill? Do, do, do you think there's much public interest in this, I guess is what I'm saying? I, I, think, I think there would be uh, quite a reaction. Uh, just to give you uh, some evidence, in Germany, the uh, finance minister talked about uh, putting a cap on the allowable cash transactions at a fairly high level by the standard of the other ECB countries. It was going to be 5,000 euros. Uh, and there was a public outcry, and he was shouted down, and the idea was immediately scrapped. And I would expect something like that in the U.S., at least I would hope for. <laughs> I, I, I do, too. I mean, my own experience with the, the simplistic, or not simplistic, but the sort of minuscule example in Louisiana, um, I mean, I was there for that. And, I, I mean, you, you would have thought that, um, you know, they were sending the state police to everybody's house. I mean, it was, it, there was, a, there was an, a, a major little stirring and uproar there uh, just over the, the ban on secondhand markets. It was a big deal. And I think until they actually do it, you won't see much interest. But once they do it, I think there'll be some. I'm uh, Chris Inglis, uh, CPA, uh, Christopher Janglis, PC. In a world in which um, right now all the IRS is co collecting all the data from all the credit card transactions into their database, so I can see in a world where there is no cash, uh, the IRS will probably have access to everyone's financial transactions, everything they buy and they sell. So a tax return would no longer be something we would submit. It would be something that the government will send us a bill because they'll know everything that we've already done, everything that we bought and everything we sold. So I think this, um, what do you think of that observation? Do you think that's possible? And that will be, obviously, um, that's a loss of personal freedom and privacy when the government knows everything that we buy and sell. Uh, and there's even, read the book Revelations about 666, you'll even learn more about uh, the, you know, having a, a number to buy and sell. And that's kind of scary. Did you want to direct that to any particular uh, speaker? Well, I, I mentioned the phrase in my paper in kind of a rhetorical flourish, the financial panopticon. <laughs> That's the kind of world that uh, is suggested by every transaction being traced. Uh, yeah, and I regard it as scary. Uh, it's hard to find many people speaking up for financial privacy, though. It's been given a kind of dirty reputation. Um, in Europe, Switzerland's about the only country that continues to stand up for it, and even they have uh, caved in the sense of giving information to U.S. tax authorities when they're asked. But they don't—they still issue a 1,000 Swiss franc note, and there's no reporting requirement when you carry cash across the Swiss border. As a Venezuelan, I have to pose the question, what is the best effective way of getting ca rid of cash? By not printing it or by printing too much of it? <laughs> Any volunteers to respond to that? 
Well, I mean, hyperinflation is an effective way of reducing the real supply of cash, but uh, I don't think anybody advocates that. <laughs> In the back. And then, Charlie, you'll be next. Uh, Jim Avril. Uh, I was wondering, I guess, Professor White, uh, what the Im fallout from the uh, Indian government's experiment in, I guess, getting rid of five and ten dollar bills. Yeah, at, at the time it was seven fifty and fifteen, but pretty close. Uh, but it wasn't designed to permanently suppress currency because they reintroduced a five hundred rupee note, and then they introduced a new two thousand rupee note, which is actually bigger than the previous largest note. But the original objective was to catch people with black money, and they completely failed. And some economists who were favorable to Modi, thinking that he's kind of a free market guy, have reconsidered, I think. Uh, they've looked at the evidence and said, well, this policy didn't really work. It didn't catch people with black money. It does not seem to have jump-started the use of electronic means of payment, which was a kind of fallback rationale for the policy. Uh, it hasn't increased tax collection, especially since it suppressed national output. Uh, so it has very few defenders, except among the very faithful party members. Uh, but most economists have recognized it as a failure. Charlie. I have a uh, technical question, legal question, which is, so historically, uh, the U.S. Treasury has also issued currency, um, and I think they still retain the right to issue currency, maybe under the Exchange Stabilization Fund or uh, one of the Silver Acts or something like that, as recently as the 30s they were. So I'm not sure um, if the Federal Reserve tried to get rid of the 50 or the $100 bill, uh, and the administration, let's say, didn't want to, could the Treasury decide to replace Federal Reserve notes with Treasury notes under current law? I don't know. If they reintroduced the 100 as a silver redeemable currency, that would be interesting. Weren't redeemable. Uh, my understanding, though, is that the, the laws that uh, formerly prohibited note issue by both state and national banks, and national bank law that required bond backing, those uh, restrictions have been removed from the books. So technically, until someone stepped in to stop them, the national banks or even some state banks could try to fill the gap. Mm -hmm. I doubt any would dare to because the, the Fed would swoop in and find some uh, mechanism, I think, for shutting them down. Uh, oh, we have a. Yes. But the Treasury, at the point, I think Charlie's point was that the Treasury, on its own authority, might issue currency. That, that, that was the question, without the Fed's cooperation. Um, the, right here. And then I've got two more. We've just still got time for a couple more. Uh, Patricia Sanz from George Mason University. Um, how effective would it be to eliminate currency to, you know, tackle illegal activities? Wouldn't they just develop a new form of currency?
I, yeah, no, I mean, that's, a, that's sort of the, the point most people, I think, would argue against this. And there was a recent, well, I don't know how recent it is now. I'm getting old. But there was, in, in the Virginia, Maryland area, uh, there was a, a, a rash of, of thieves um, stealing Tide, laundry detergent. They were using Tide as... Laundering? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, they were they were they were literally using Tide as currency. Uh, you go into a CVS to buy Tide, and it would have the the magnetic uh, what are the, whatever those things are, so you couldn't just walk out with it without setting off the alarm. Um, they were stealing pallets and pallets of laundry detergent. Drug dealers using that as currency. So yes, they would find something. I think people would find something else to use. The uh, the Treasury is already on the case of cryptocurrencies, right? The cryptocurrency exchanges are required to know their customers and comply with anti-money laundering uh, laws on the grounds that they are money service businesses. So the tax authorities are already ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, but still, I would say that if once people credibly anticipate that the government might uh, get rid of large denomination notes that I'd be long in Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, Ken, Ken, if I may on this, uh, Ken Rogoff in his book does have a sentence, you can miss it easily enough, where he says, well, of course, if people started using other private uh, kinds of money as an alternative to official currency, well, we'd have to ban those too. Mm -hmm. It's just one sentence. And of course, you can imagine this just would go on and on, like the war on drugs, the he, war on cash would, would be endless. He also, has, he also has one sentence in there that you'll miss. It says, uh, of course, there are obviously better ways of, of stopping crime than banning cash. <laughs> so there are, good, there are some <laughs> interesting sentences in the book. <laughs> Over here, I think, uh, is next. Mike Mork and Mork Capital, you've touched on it a little bit, but I just want to know the panel's uh, forecast for Bitcoin has proven not to be a store of value, but what do you think the future is for the Bitcoin and its different digital currencies? There are uh, I, so, some cryptocurrencies around to stay. I, I don't know if Bitcoin is going to be it, but uh, there seems to be too much momentum to imagine that none of these are around in the long term. There uh, are some uh, technical problems with Bitcoin scaling, as they say, to handle a large volume of transactions. It's the, the network is already congested at the current volume. Uh, but there are people working on solutions to that, so it's a little too soon to say whether some crypto asset on the Ethereum blockchain will solve this problem. Uh, but yeah, there are people ready to, and people working on the problem of making it uh, much more convenient for ordinary people to use. Well, Larry, didn't, didn't Bitcoin s split as a Bitcoin cash or something? Was that the Yeah, idea? that was about the, the congestion. It was about enlarging the block so that more transactions could be processed in, in real time. But the legacy currency, which was supposed to be better for that, or sorry, the, it, it, one of them has died off, right? No, no not, it's still not there. quite. No. No, a Bitcoin Cash had a big rally, and then... It's, it's like the third, third highest capitalized, or fourth? It was. It was. <laughs> it was. There's a, of course, it's also, it's ultimately a race between the cryptocurrencies and the crypto-Nazis. <laughs> um, who else? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, right there. Right there. In the back. George is number. 
Oh, George, did you have your hand up too? He'll, Sorry, he'll next. Uh, I'll call you next. Yeah, Slade Mendenhall, uh, George Mason University. Uh, Dr. White, I expect you to know the answer to this question, but uh, what might we learn from um, previous experiences with countries, say, more authoritarian, more authoritarian countries, more, you know, communist countries trying to eliminate the use of currency? And how well do Rogoff's proposed substitutions or replacements really answer those problems? Or is he, does he have blind spots in terms of, you know, in terms of previous experiences and those troubles with eliminating currency altogether in an economy or eliminating hard currency? Yeah, so his vision is one where everybody's in the banking system and so transactions are traceable and the tax authorities can, can find them and the criminal prosecutors can find them. Uh, I don't know that much about how transactions were handled off the books in uh, Soviet Russia, but there was a lot of barter from what I understand and a lot of creative accounting. Uh, if you have just a monobank system, then it's, I guess, even easier to uh, trace everybody who uses that banking system. But in the communist countries, the banking systems are pretty much useless <laughs> uh, if you're not connected enough to get a loan. Uh, so I, I don't know how much he uh, sort of understates the flexibility, but as was previously discussed, people will, if they suspect that everything is being tracked, find a way to cloak it some way. I'm going to take one more question from George, and then uh, if you still have one, and uh, and then we're going to take uh, a, a few extra minutes for the break, so we get to have a 20-minute break instead. Thanks. It's not a question, just a quick comment. Uh, I've heard uh, reference in, to the uh, phasing out of the Eurozone 500 note, and I uh, just wanted to comment that it's it's not a clear-cut um, decision. Not, it, a lot of people have been against it, and there's a reason for that. Uh, the 500 note, besides the, the, the problem of uh, money laundering that's been involved in it, has also been considered a very safe store of value. And uh, in countries with banking crises, and we've had a number of them in the Eurozone, uh, the 500 note's been used as something that people have been putting under the mattresses, and for good reason because there's been a concern about uh, haircuts on deposits. And we had a situation in one country, and that was Cyprus, where uh, people who had deposits in the banking system wound up taking um, haircuts on the deposits, whereas the $500 note, if you have it in your, in your mattress, uh, it wasn't subject to that. So because of in situations of banking um, crises, uh, there is a reason why people want to have large denomination notes. George, that's going to add on to your statement. That's going to be particularly true if part of the risk you bear as a depositor is exchange rate risk from departure from the euro. I just add one footnote to that. Uh, when the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and knocked out the power and the banking grid, it was a good thing that cash hadn't been banned because that's all that was left. Yeah, you could say that about the bank holiday of uh, 1933, too. It was a good thing that cash hadn't been done. All right, everybody, let's, uh, let's uh, thank our speakers. Uh